0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Happening now, breaking news. Closing arguments
1: just wrapped up in Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial. The former president taking his campaign to the courtroom, launching into a rambling speech before being cut off by the judge who urged Trump's attorneys to control their client. Plus, we're now in the final stretch before Iowa decides, with the first in the nation caucuses just four days away. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis trying to capitalize on last night's heated CNN debate and close the gap with Republican frontrunner Donald Trump. A key Haley supporter, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu joins me live this hour. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room.
2: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: And let's get straight to the breaking news. Donald Trump's New York civil fraud trial comes to a close. The judge in the case aiming to reveal his decision on the state's request for a $370 million judgment against Trump by the end of this month. CNN's Kara Scannell is just outside the courthouse where all of today's drama went down. Kara, how did this unfold?
3: Well, well Trump's attorneys gave their closing arguments for much of the morning where his lead attorney, Chris Keis, had said that the... AG's office presented not one witness who testified that there was any fraud committed here. Now, the big question was, was Donald Trump going to speak? The judge had set out terms that said that he could only speak if he stuck to the facts and the law. And Trump had not agreed to do that in advance of the hearing. But then at the end of the day, at the end of the closing arguments, Trump's attorney asked the judge if he could speak. The judge allowed Trump to stand up and address him. And Trump told the judge that he was an innocent person being persecuted by someone running for office. He continued to then talk about a witch on talk about how this was uh, politically motivated by the New York Attorney General Letitia James. And that is when the judge stopped him and said one minute to Trump to give him a one-minute warning. Trump said, you have your own agenda. I understand that. The judge saying, Mr. Kais, please control your client. And then he cut him off as the clock struck one because that was the time for the lunch break. The judge even telling Kais if he had wrapped up his closing quicker, Trump could have had more time to speak. But Trump again telling the judge that he did nothing wrong. He said he was an innocent man. Now, when he left the courthouse, House. He continued to go on the attack. He addressed reporters just at one of his properties in Lower Manhattan. Here's what he said:
4: "She's a political hack. The Attorney General, uh, the judge is obviously extremely friendly with the group. It's really a, uh, it's a witch hunt in the truest sense of the word. It's election interference."
3: So after Trump's team gave their closing statements, then it was the New York Attorney General's team. They had outlined to the judge that they said that Trump had committed fraud on his financial statements for 10 years, beginning in 2011. And they argued that the judge should find him and his adult son's liable. Wolf?
1: So, Kara, what is the New York Attorney General saying about all of this? And what's the bottom line as far as what's at stake for Trump?
3: Well, the attorneys in court had argued, made their arguments on the law, and what one of the state attorney generals had said is the court should infer that Trump acted with intent to defraud based on his extensive knowledge about his assets, pointing to his knowledge about his triplex apartment that was overvalued, that they acknowledged was a mistake. But the attorney general said that that was screaming evidence of intent to defraud. Now, after the court wrap and all, the, all was said and done, the New York attorney came out to address the cameras. Here's what she said.
5: This case has never been about politics, or personal vendetta, or about name calling. This case is about the facts and the law. And Mr. Donald Trump violated the law. I want everyone to know that the personal attacks really don't bother me.
3: So the judge said that he will now take all their arguments under advisement, and he said he would hope to make a decision in this case by the end of the month, but he said that that was no promise or no guarantee. But the New York attorney general is asking the judge to find or get ill-gotten gains from the Trump Organization of $370 million, to borrow from doing business in New York, and to put a five-year bar on his sons, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. Very interesting moment in the courtroom. where the state was giving their closing arguments, the judge questioned whether they had proven that the adult sons had committed any fraud. The judge saying, what evidence do you have? I just haven't seen it, that they knew that there was fraud. The attorney general's lawyer saying that you can't stick your head in the sand as a defense. Well,
1: Kara Scannell in New York for us. Kara, thanks for that report. I want to bring in our legal and political experts for analysis right now. And Kerry Cordero, uh, did Trump help himself addressing the court today? He didn't have to, but he wanted to.
3: I don't
6: think he helped himself in front of the judge. Remember that perhaps that would have appealed to a jury, uh, regular citizens, but I don't think that that would impact the judge in any positive way, if anything, um, because the judge then had to turn to his lawyers and say, uh, calm down your client. Uh, I think that probably he did himself more harm. But I don't think that was even his point, right? His point was to be able to make a statement and use it for political purposes down the road.
1: Yeah, that's, and that's clearly what he did. Norm Eisen, uh, let me get your sense. What's the, what's the risk right now for the Trump Organization?
7: Well, it's substantial, Wolf, including that when all of these trial and appellate proceedings are concluded, it may lo- no longer be called the Trump Organization. Uh, it's not just the massive, uh, over $300 million in financial penalties Uh, for the wrongdoing that the Attorney General is seeking. But there is injunctive relief. This judge has already ordered, it's been stayed pending appeal. This judge has already ordered Uh, some of the remedies that uh, can be referred to as a corporate death penalty. Trump and his sons not allowing to participate in the the business, not allowed to do other business, to take loans for a period of time, Uh, perhaps putting a receiver in charge. If all of that comes to pass, and if it holds up on appeal, and I think the judge has been careful, like with those Eric and Don Jr. comments, he's showing balance. If it holds up on appeal, this could be the end of the Trump Organization as we have known it for all of these years. Yeah,
1: which is a huge, huge moment indeed. Uh, Kristen Holmes is with us. She's in New York watching all of this unfold. Uh, She was with the former president earlier today. This is a very personal case as we all know for the former president, Kristen, which in many ways goes to the heart of his own identity. Talk about that.
8: Yeah, that's right, Wolf. I mean, Donald Trump has had an identity and a brand that was that he was a real estate tycoon, that he built this successful business in Manhattan, that he could make money so he could make money for people, which is what he argued when he was running for office in 2016. This really goes to all of that. As he has said over and over again, he believes that they devalued his properties. Particularly, he has been fixated on the valuation that they gave Mar-a-Lago, his resort, in um, Palm Beach where they said it was worth 18 million dollars he believes it's worth far more than that. And it seems to very much upset him because he, again, views himself as a real estate tycoon. So we know that he has been sitting in on these trials, this trial specifically, multiple times, and that he's been really engaged. At times, we were told he was only going to stay half a day. He stayed the whole day. But there is another reason for this as well, which is he is treating these campa- these trials like campaign stops. And that's exactly what we saw today. We have to keep in mind we are just days away from that Iowa caucuses, from those first ballots being cast in this primary season. And Donald Trump does want to suck all the oxygen out of the race. We are seeing Nikki Haley on the rise. We are seeing a all-out battle between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley on the ground in Iowa. He does not want them to have any space on the campaign trail. He wants to take complete control of the media narrative. And that's really what you saw today. Every opportunity that he had to get in front of a camera and try to make his case, he took it.
1: Yeah, important points, uh, Kristen, thank you. Kerry. Uh, how do you think the judge is likely to decide in this
6: case? Well, of course, this judge has already found that the Trump organization engaged in fraud and most of this particular case that has gone on for weeks now has to do with the penalties and the extent to which the company is going to be brought to heel. So I think the judge already has shown that he is disposed to finding that there is fraud. I think this is really about the dollar amounts. Um, the attorney general has asked for hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think one question is whether or not the judge goes as high as she would like. And then I do think his point about that the judge made about the adult sons who run the business does lend towards wondering whether he will really try to cripple the organization itself if he thinks that they are really now in charge and they didn't uh, necessarily have personal knowledge or intent with respect to the fraud. So the continuation of the business, I think, is a remaining question.
1: Let me get uh, Norm back into this conversation. How long do you think, Norm, this process could unwind, could take place before the Trump Organization is directly impacted?
7: The judge has said he wants to issue a ruling towards the end of the month. That's an approximate date. Then it will move through the appellate process. We know the appellate courts in New York, the appellate division, has had some questions about just those remedies. How far can this judge go? They've stayed some of the most severe remedies. Uh, it is not a fast appellate process in New York. There's two levels of appeal. It could take years before we get a final answer.
1: And potentially the judge could rule that the Trump Organization and Trump personally and the sons could no longer do business in New York
7: potentially, and he's already signaled some direction towards that with his initial ruling on partial summary judgment, but raising questions today about the Sons. Yeah,
1: for Trump, this is obviously very, very sensitive indeed. Kristen, Trump gave some remarks after leaving the court in New York where you are, and you had a chance to ask him a key question. Tell us about that.
8: Yeah, well, so this was actually about a separate case, which we saw on Tuesday, a reminder. Trump went down to the federal court in D.C. for his um, to listen to his legal team really argue his immunity claims. And a hypothetical that a judge brought up to his lawyer essentially was if Donald Trump or if a president ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill a political opponent should they be prosecuted? And essentially the lawyer said no. So I asked Donald Trump point blank, do you agree with your lawyer's statements asking if he believed that presidents were above the law? And this is what he said.
4: If a president of the United States does not have immunity, he'll be totally ineffective because he won't be able to do anything because it will mean he'll be prosecuted, strongly prosecuted perhaps, uh, as soon as he leaves office by by the opposing party. So a president of the United States, I'm not talking just me, I'm talking any president has to have immunity.
8: It really sounds like he is saying that a president can do almost anything with immunity once they're in office. The argument there being that his lawyers are saying he was acting in his official capacity after the election in 2020 to try and find fraud. Jack Smith says that's just not accurate.
1: Yeah, important point indeed as well. Uh, Guys, thank you very, very much. Coming up, We have news from the campaign trail tonight with four days to go until the first test of the 2024 presidential race. We'll have a live report from Iowa, along with the New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, a key supporter of Nikki Haley. He's standing by for a live interview. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number.
9: There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In just four days, the Iowa caucuses could make or break multiple Republican presidential campaigns. CNN's Jessica Dean is on the trail for us in Ames, Iowa. Jessica, this is the final stretch before a critical contest.
5: That's absolutely right, Wolf. And there's really two realities playing out right now. You all were just talking about the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, spending his day in a New York City courtroom. Meantime, we have Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley crisscrossing Iowa, uh, trying to get their message out to as many Iowans as possible before Monday's caucuses. And of course, the big question that's swirling is will an alternative emerge to Trump on Monday? Tonight in Iowa, Republican presidential candidates continuing their final push for votes ahead of Monday's critical caucuses. So
10: get excited four days until caucus.
11: You know, I'm a guy, I'm running on on, on your issues and your family's issues and this country's issues. Uh, You know, I'm not running uh, for any other reason.
10: Ron doesn't defeat Biden. Trump is
5: head to head with Biden. On a good day, he might be up by two. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley clashing on the CNN debate stage Wednesday night, attacking one another on competency, character, and conservative convictions.
8: If
10: leadership's about getting things done, how did you blow through $150 million in your campaign? We went and saved our money. We made sure we spent it right, because you have to understand it's not your money, it's other people's money, and you have to know how to handle it. If he can't handle the financial parts of a campaign, how's he going to handle the economy when it comes to the White House. I
11: think here's the problem. You can take the ambassador out of the United Nations, but you can't take the United Nations out of the ambassador. (laughs) We don't need another mealy mouth politician who just tells you what she thinks you want to hear just to try to get your vote, then to get in office and to do her donor's bidding.
5: While other candidates continued to pitch their closing arguments to voters, former President Donald Trump attending closing arguments of his civil fraud trial in New York a day after again refusing to debate the other candidates and instead taking the stage alone on Fox News. I'm not
4: going to have time for retribution. We're going to make this country so successful again. I'm not going to have time for retribution.
5: DeSantis and Haley largely avoided sustained attacks on the former president.
10: I think he was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies, but his way is not my way.
11: If Trump is the nominee, it's going to be about January 6. Legal issues, criminal trials, the Democrats and the media would love to run with that.
10: All
5: of this unfolding just hours after former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie dropped out of the race, criticizing rivals who've refused to call out Trump.
1: Anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States is unfit themselves to be president of the United States.
5: And Wolf, one factor we're all keeping an eye on here is the weather in Iowa. We've got a major snowstorm that is set to hit Iowa in the coming hours. How will that affect candidates' events tomorrow and leading into the weekend? And then looking ahead to caucus day on Monday, it's expected to be the coldest caucus day ever, the coldest January day in Iowa in five years, wind gusts up to negative 40. And Wolf, you know, when you're covering presidential politics and elections, there can be jokes about it's all about turnout, but with those conditions, uh, can Candidates and their campaigns are going to have to make sure that their supporters get to those caucus sites on Monday night. Yeah, that ground,
1: the ground game will be critical indeed. Jessica Dean, thank you very much. Joining us now, the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu. He's endorsed Nikki Haley for president. Uh, governor, thanks so much for joining us. Nikki Haley, as you know, you spent a lot of time last night making the case against Ron DeSantis, but spent much less time talking about Donald Trump or Joe Biden for that matter. Was this a mistake?
12: Oh no, look, Nikki is is understands who's on the stage with her. Uh, she understands that right now, DeSantis and Trump are the two that have set expectations very high in Iowa. They've both said they're gonna win Iowa. She hasn't really set those expectations. So when someone's on the stage, she's gonna go after DeSantis. I thought she was very clear on Trump as well, talking about the election denialism, talking about January 6th, what a tragic day that was. So she took her shots there where she had to. But as Nikki always does, she's about herself. She's about what she's gonna bring to the table, the leadership that's there. She knows that voters are vote for someone, not just to against others. So I think she did a a phenomenal job, especially, I mean, look at the international stuff. She really just owned Ron on those issues. I think she owns all the candidates on those issues because of that background knowledge and expertise. And given that these international issues are really at the forefront, more so than we've seen in other presidential uh, campaigns in the past, Um, I think that's one of the reasons you see her surging in Iowa, surging in New Hampshire, and it really has become that one-on-one race between her and Trump.
1: In our latest CNN poll of New Hampshire, as you know, Governor, the now former Republican presidential candidate, Chris Chris Christie, received 12% of the vote, while nearly two thirds of his voters say Haley is their second choice. Does Christie's exit put Haley in position to defeat
12: Trump and win your state of New Hampshire? Without a doubt, there's no question. Now you still gotta go earn them, right? All those voters don't just come on board Nikki has a better ground game here in New Hampshire than anyone. She connects with people better. She does the retail politics. Trump doesn't even try on the retail politics side. He comes in, does a, a big rally, and takes off. Doesn't answer any questions. So Nikki understands you still have to go earn those voters, right? And she's going to continue to engage with them all the way to election day. So, um, but there's no doubt. I think you you're absolutely right. They are poised to come over to her team. Uh, we'll see what happens with Ron. You know, depending on how well he does in, in Iowa. But this has become a one-on-one race. She's right there. Nobody thought. Any anyone was going to challenge Trump in any of these states, uh, and she's kind of kind of shattered all presumptions on that so far. To deliver a shocking win here in New Hampshire would be an amazing opportunity for the country. So as your previous report was saying, you got to get out the vote. I mean, that's a, that's, it's not a cliche. It really is important getting folks out, making them realize they don't just support Haley on their couch. They got to get behind Nikki and come out to the ballot box. It looks like we're going to have some pretty good weather, probably a little better than I was going to have. So I, we, I anticipate our turnout to be pretty darn high. Just before Chris Christie took the
1: stage for his final campaign speech yesterday, he was heard on a hot mic talking about Nikki Haley. Let me play that clip for you. Listen to this. She's going to get smoked, and you and I both know it. How do you respond to that?
12: Well, look, you know, Chris is about to go on stage in that moment and kind of shut down his campaign. That's a tough moment for him. I think Chris is a great guy. I think he ran a strong race. I give him all the credit in the world for his consistency on message and all of that. It didn't pan out for the vote. So... I would just say it's, it's kind of a raw moment for Chris. I, you know, whether, I think she, she's, she's not going to get smoked. I mean, the data all says that because from New Hampshire, if it's oh, that one-on-one race, um, you know, first, second, second, first, and then she goes to her home state, and there's a huge opportunity there. So the, the dynamics are changing so fast in this race, um, and it's all pointing towards opportunity for Nikki Haley. So I, I appreciate you know, Chris is, was having a moment there, but I, I don't think it's, it's telling in any way. Governor, I know you've suggested
1: that you will vote for Trump even if he is a convicted felon. Nikki Haley has basically said that as well. She's refused to rule out joining Trump's ticket as a vice presidential nominee. Given that, why should anyone take either of your criticisms
12: of Trump seriously? Well, look, I, the issue around the, the voting as a convicted felon, that's a complete hypothetical, right? It's a complete hypothetical. My point there is this. If you think that these court cases are going to come to some sort of firm resolution before the election and that what's the, the result of, of any of these are going to impact the vote, everyone always says that, but it never does, right? The voters are not looking at those issues they're not looking at january 6th that is not what the voters are galvanizing behind they they want they know biden uh, bidenomics whatever that that is and inflation these things have crushed middle american families and that's what these folks have to be talking about so i get that it's fodder and all that but my point there is more don't worry about long-term hypotheticals that you think may or may not uh, affect the race. You got you to gotta win the votes here. If you want Trump out, if you want to defeat Trump, it happens in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's really where it happens. And that's why we don't want anyone to kind of sit on the couch and just wait to see what happens in the court. I think that's, that's more the driver than anything else.
1: Yeah, these next few days will be critical indeed. Governor Chris Sununu, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. All right, coming up, we're going to get more analysis on the sprint to the finish in Iowa. We'll be right back. All right, let's get back to our top political story, the countdown to the Iowa Republican caucuses after a rather heated CNN debate last night. Our political team is joining us now with some analysis, and Gloria Gloria is here. DeSantis and Haley, they spent much of the night really going after Bickering. each other. What did you think of that strategy?
6: <laughs> well, I don't think it, it changed anything, to tell you the truth. I think they were, you're a liar, you're a liar. It was like political ping-pong. And if you're a voter coming to this and you're trying to decide... Uh, who you like better, I don't think a decision was made last night. Interesting.
1: You know, Kristen Soltis-Anderson is with us. DeSantis has clearly spent a lot of time and a lot of money in Iowa. What does he need to achieve?
13: He needs to come in a strong second, I think, in order to breathe life and oxygen back into his campaign. He's already got very little to look forward to after Iowa. He does not poll well in New Hampshire. He's nowhere to be found in South Carolina. So he needs an enormous amount of energy coming out of Iowa to get kind of escape velocity, to have momentum for the rest of the campaign.
1: We're, to- we're told, Karen, that uh, Iowa will have the coldest ever or maybe at least in several years, the coldest ever Iowa caucuses when it comes to to Monday. So how's that gonna impact the result?
2: I think as long as people can actually get to their caucus locations, they should be fine because Iowans are hardy, they're used to the cold, they're used to having to make their way through the cold and they are used to the caucus process. So as long as people can get there, it should be fine. If there are trouble on the roads, that's where some of these folks, and we've seen people this week have trouble actually even getting to their events. So I think that's one thing to look for.
1: Cold is cold. Uh, we'll see what happens on that front. You know, Gloria, in Trump's town hall last night, uh, he seemed to walk back some of his recent rather controversial statements.
4: Let me play this clip. Can you say tonight that political violence is never acceptable? Well, of course that's right. And, of course, I'm the one that had very little of it. I am not going to be a dictator. I'm going to manage like we did. I'm not going to have time for retribution. We're going to make this country so successful again. I'm not going to have time for retribution. All right, so what did, what did you make of that strategy?
6: Well, they, put, they, they put out a fundraiser that said that he's your retribution. Look, I think somebody got in his ear and said, you know, this might not play well. And so maybe you ought to walk these things back a bit, which is exactly what he was doing. I'm not going to have time for retribution. I'm not going to be a dictator after he said he would be at least on day one, I think, I think this is a strategist saying to him, cool it. And he did.
1: I think you're right. You know, Kristen, let me play another clip from Trump's town hall last night. Listen to this.
4: For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it. And I'm proud to have done it. Because Trump seems to have
1: been in many different areas when it comes to abortion rights for women, Roe v. Wade.
13: He wants to make sure that he does not give an opening to someone like ron desantis who has tried to hammer him from the right on this issue he wants to stake his claim no i'm the one that appointed the justices that did this thing that put these points on the board for conservatives but he also knows the potential political toxicity there he sees the same numbers that we all do that republicans have really struggled at the ballot box in a post roe versus wade world and wants to make sure that he says hey, 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 I'm not going to be as far out there as, say, someone like Ron DeSantis.
2: You know, this is a tactic we've seen him do many times where he tries to be on multiple sides of an issue so that everybody gets to hear what they're listening for. And somehow he is the one person who is able to pull it off in politics, whereas others get called out, He seems to be able to make it work for him.
1: Yeah, and the Biden campaign has already jumped on him uh, on this issue very, very quickly. And they
6: will continue to. Yeah, I'm sure they will.
1: A very sensitive issue indeed. All right, guys, thank you very much. Just ahead, House Speaker Mike Johnson tells CNN he's not worried about keeping his job, but some in his party say he should be worried.
3: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings.
1: Speaker Mike Johnson is under pressure from the right flank in the House Republican Conference after negotiating a government funding deal with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Let's get the very latest from CNN's chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju. He's up on Capitol Hill. Manu, the speaker is facing yet another major test. Give us the very latest.
9: Yeah, pressure he is now building on the Speaker of the House to back away from a deal that he cut with a Democratic leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, a deal that he believed was good to sell to his members and it could avoid a government shutdown by next week. But those members on the far right are pushing him to back away from that, seek even deeper cuts. But if he were to do that, that could prompt a government shutdown by next week. Speaker Mike Johnson trying to tamp down a conservative revolt as tensions flare with hard right Republicans over his deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to avoid a government shutdown next week. He didn't go in with the strongest hand, and what I'm, what I'm looking for now is a fighter.
6: I think it was a massive failure, and we had no input into the conversations.
9: Do you think Johnson cut a bad deal here with Schumer? I do. This place is a joke now trying to avoid the same fate as Kevin McCarthy, the first speaker ever ousted after he relied on Democrats to help keep the government open. Johnson and Schumer cut a deal over the holiday recess to fund federal agencies at an overall level of $1.66 trillion, similar to the deal McCarthy and the White House agreed to last May. By the time we could even get back into D.C., he had negotiated the terms of our surrender on the issue. Do you think he's up to the job? I think the problem is we didn't do the right thing up front. So we focused on who should be the next speaker. We focused on a person. In protest, 13 hardliners stalled action in the House this week. Now those members want Johnson to back away from his deal and seek even deeper cuts, while also imposing new immigration restrictions, moves that would almost certainly cause a shutdown. I do not want to fund a government that's working against us.
2: There's a likelihood we could have a week or two short term,
1: you know, uh, uh shutdown. Would you be OK with that? I think if it's for a short period of time,
2: yeah, that we get these appropriation bills done.
9: Johnson telling CNN he is not concerned about his job. Are you worried that one of these guys is going to make a move on you?
2: No, I'm not
3: worried about that at all. I am a lifelong, hardcore conservative. I, I want to get as many policy wins as we can. But the reality is we have a small majority. Indeed, many furious at the far right,
9: saying Johnson's hands are tied with a razor-thin majority and with Democrats running the White House and the Senate. They say the deal includes spending cuts Republicans should tout. Seems like you guys are sort of banging your heads against the wall with some of these folks. Uh, I'm suffering. I've got traumatic brain injury from banging my head against the wall.
14: I'm not big fans of them. Let's put it that way. But
9: the eight Republicans who voted out McCarthy are offering no regrets.
13: Well, I mean, the former speaker wasn't someone you could trust. I trust Mike Johnson.
9: And right now, this negotiation in the House is really between defense hawks, members of the Republican Party who consider themselves defense hawks, and members of that far-right Freedom Caucus. They are negotiating how they can avoid a government shutdown by next week. There are several options that are on the table, but Wolf, if Mike Johnson decides to go a route that breaks from his deal with Chuck Schumer, almost certainly you can expect Democrats to reject that, which will raise real fears about a government shutdown. But if Johnson decides to side with Chuck Schumer, those threats to oust him from the speakership will only intensify.
1: Manu Raju up on Capitol Hill, thank you. Uh, we're also following other breaking news right now. Hunter Biden pleading not guilty to federal tax charges in a Los Angeles courtroom. Let's get some more now from CNN national correspondent, Nick Waddy's outside the courthouse. Nick, update our viewers.
2: Well, Wolf, Hunter Biden came in and out of this courthouse through the back entrance, no comments to reporters. Um, And this historic hearing took just a few minutes. This is a criminal case, but Wolf, politics hangs heavy over these proceedings. The sitting president's sometimes wayward son could face prison time over taxes he didn't pay on foreign earnings. He just pleaded not guilty to nine counts, including three felonies. This is a legal matter and potentially very consequential. It comes after yesterday's political posturing in Washington over Hunter Biden's role in the impeachment inquiry into Biden senior, which is also focused on Biden Jr.'s overseas income. According to this indictment handed down by a grand jury in L.A., Hunter Biden earned over $7 million between 2016 and 2020, but failed to pay at least $1.4 million in taxes he owed on time. The defendants spend the money on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels and rental properties, exotic cars and other items of a personal nature. In short, everything but his taxes. Also, and these are the felonies, he is accused of filing a fraudulent return for 2018 after allegedly claiming some very private expenses were for business purposes. Eleven and a half thousand for two nights with an escort, more than 27,000 on online porn, and nearly 60,000 on his daughter's rent and college tuition. Biden's lawyers say all this happened when he was in the grip of drug addiction. He's now clean and paid his tax bills plus interest and penalties more than two years before this indictment was ever filed. This morning, Jill Biden said this.
8: I think what they are doing to Hunter is cruel. And I'm really proud of um, how Hunter has rebuilt his life uh, after addiction.
2: He almost reached a plea deal in the summer. A separate gun charge would have been dropped. He would have pleaded guilty to two tax misdemeanors and faced no jail time. That deal collapsed at the very last minute, largely over the breadth of immunity on offer. His lawyers claim it collapsed under pressure from former President Trump and other Republicans, who in turn claim the criminal investigation of Hunter Biden was politically tilted in his favor based on allegations from IRS whistleblowers. Both claims the Justice Department flatly denies. And today, the judge set a trial date, June 20th, here in downtown Los Angeles. So this year, what we could see is a sitting president out on the campaign trail while his son is on trial and while his likely opponent, Donald Trump, who has his own legal issues, is also in the dock.
1: Nick Watt in L.A., thank you very much for that report. Coming up, South Africa accuses Israel of committing genocide during its war against Hamas in Gaza. Both countries are litigating the allegations before the United Nations top court in The Hague. All right, there's major breaking news we're following right now. A United States official tells CNN the U.S. military has carried out strikes on multiple Houthi targets in Yemen. I want to bring in our our team for more information. And Oren Lieberman, you're joining us from the Pentagon. Let's get the latest from you first. This is a big deal if the U.S. is attacking targets inside Yemen. The Houthis are, of course, backed by Iran. This war could be escalating big time.
15: The U.S. and the U.K. to a large extent have been telegraphing the fact that if attacks on commercial shipping lanes in the Red Sea, a critical waterway continued, the U.S. would be compelled to act. We are now seeing those actions take place in real time. A U.S. official telling CNN that the U.S. is hitting multiple targets in Yemen controlled by the Houthis. We have seen reports of explosions in major western Yemenite cities like Al-Hudaydah and several other cities there that the likely result of these U.S. strikes, the strikes carried out by U.S. fighter jets as well as Tomahawk missiles, those are land attack missiles launched from Navy vessels. There's also an expectation based on comments we've seen from the U.K. that they might be a part of these strikes as well. Crucially, this is not a strike on a single location. These are multiple targets and apparently based on reports of explosions From Yemen across multiple cities. The U.S. very much trying to send a message as it works to deter further attacks on commercial shipping lanes, attacks that have forced some uh, major shipping companies to entirely avoid the Red Sea, adding thousands of miles to shipping routes. It is because of this threat, the shipping, that the U.S. set up Operation Prosperity Guardian with more than 20 other countries to defend the shipping lanes, but that was purely defensive. This is an offensive operation targeting the Houthis in Yemen. The Houthis had vowed that they would respond to any sort of U.S. aggression with an even greater response. We saw them just on Tuesday launch 21 drones and missiles that were intercepted by U.S. and U.K. destroyers and aircraft. So you see over the course of the last... 48, 72 hours, a potential major escalation in the Red Sea and the Southern Red Sea. Again, the U.S. now carrying out strikes in Yemen using fighter jets, as well as Tomahawk missiles against Houthi targets. They had warned this was a possibility, and Wolf, we are very much seeing that possibility play out as we speak.
1: Yeah, this war could be expanding big time right now. MJ Lee, you're over at the White House for us. Has the White House said anything about this latest development?
10: Wolf, the White House has not officially commented yet, but I think it is worth noting uh, how significant this action is, given that the U.S. had very much hoped uh, that things would not devolve uh, to this point. Uh, This has been a huge priority for the administration to essentially try to keep things in the Middle East contained and not have a broader regional conflict, given uh, the existing volatility uh, in the region. Uh, It has also been a priority for the administration to not disturb the current truce in the Yemen civil war. Uh, Now, this action that we are now reporting out of the Pentagon uh, clearly signals uh, that the situation in the Red Sea had become uh, completely intolerable for the U.S. and its allies. And we did see uh, a bit of a turning point last week when a U.S. official uh, said following the weeks and weeks of provocations and the attacks from the Houthis in the Red Sea on these shipping vessels uh, that they were essentially giving the last warning, that there would not be uh, another warning. And so given that we have seen these attacks and these provocations uh, continue some ways uh, we were very much preparing for a different kind of response uh, from the U.S. and its allies. Uh, again, we haven't gotten an official word from the White House, but Wolf, as Oren was saying, given the uh, significance of this kind of action by the U.S. Uh, in Yemen, we should expect to hear from the president in some way tonight. Wolf.
1: A yeah, very significant development indeed. Uh, Colonel Layton, uh, you're our military analyst. Uh, these strikes certainly do carry a real risk of escalation right now. Give us your reaction.
14: Yeah, well, the the big uh, situation here with these strikes is that, first of all, they are going to hit some of the targets. As Oren mentioned, Hudaida, the main port in western Yemen, uh, is a highly likely target. Uh, There are a lot of anti-aircraft and anti-ship missiles that are located in that area. Uh, As far as the escalation, the possibilities of escalation are concerned, uh, what can happen here is that the Houthis are going to respond first to the ships, the U.S. ships and British ships in the Red Sea, uh, then they could possibly target uh, stru- uh, situation you know, installations in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that could very much inflame tensions uh, throughout the southern Arabian Peninsula at this particular point. So I think we're going to see uh, some major activity uh, in the next 24 hours or so.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Oren. I know the U.S. had sought to avoid this escalation, this development, but it's clearly happening uh, as we speak right now. And I know the U.S. was prepared for this. There's a U.S.
15: aircraft carrier battle group not too far away, right? Correct. The USS Dwight D. Eisenhower is, I believe, at this point in the Red Sea. If not very close by, there are some four U.S. destroyers in the Red Sea. There's a British destroyer there as well. In addition, I believe other warships from from other countries. Those part of Operation Prosperity Guardian to try to protect international shipping there. But it's exactly these kinds of ships you need to shoot Houthi launches out of the sky, and these same types of ships that can use, for example, Tomahawk missiles to carry out strikes on land targets. It is worth noting. Uh, that we can now say a senior administration officials briefed congressional leadership that earlier today that these strikes were imminent. So Congress given a heads up. Congress has put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Biden administration uh, t- to do essentially more than, than make statements or put warships in the Red Sea to try to push back against the Houthis and make sure they don't threaten one of the world's most critical waterways. Again, that's what we're seeing here play out. The U.S. very much aware that there could be a risk of escalation with the Houthis. And because the Houthis are an Iranian proxy, you have to keep an eye on Iran to see their reaction to this, especially after the U.S. As they seized a tanker in the Gulf of Oman earlier today.
1: Yeah, very, very significant. Uh, looks like this war, as I said, is escalating big time. And, and Colonel Layton, as you know, these, uh, this aircraft carrier battle group has a lot of warplanes ready to go if, uh, if given the order. Uh, what do you think? How likely is uh, this next step uh, going to be taking place?
14: I think it's highly likely, Wolf, Uh, and I think the warplanes that you mentioned, primarily fa 18 fighters uh, on board the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, they are going to be used to strike targets that are more complex. Uh, than what you would uh, normally strike with a Tomahawk missile. Uh, some of the areas that they might strike would include radar installations. Uh, they will also probably go after some of the command and control uh, nodes that the Houthis have. Uh, so that is basically what we're looking at here. Uh, see, I think, a lot of activity in the northern part of Yemen and in the western part, which are the areas that the Houthis currently control.
1: I want to bring in CNN's chief national security correspondent, Alex Marcourt. He's getting more information. Tell us more about. The U.S. allies, uh, their involvement in what's going on, Alex.
11: Well, Wolf, it was a major consideration in carrying out the military operation that we are now seeing unfold that the U.S. not do this alone. There is a belief uh, that the British would also have a hand in this and potentially others as well. Uh, the U.S. really wanted to have global support when it came to retaliating uh, against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Uh, you have this coalition of 22 countries, Operation Prosperity Guardian, that was set up uh, late last year in order to protect ships in the Red Sea. And then just last week, uh, the U.S. and other countries warning of consequences uh, to the Houthis if they continue to carry out attacks against commercial shipping in the Red Sea. That was a warning that was issued by the White House alongside uh, 11 other countries. Wolf, there was a real sense that this was imminent uh, as soon as that statement was put out. A senior administration official saying that there would not be another warning. Uh, we have seen several attempted attacks and attacks by the Houthis in the past few days, and here we are seeing the response. So as Oren and the colonel have been alluding to, the, the, the question now is, what, does, what do the Houthis do? What does Iran do in reaction to tonight's strikes? Uh, we heard from a senior Houthi leader uh, just earlier today who said that uh, they would confront American America and make it kneel down. I've been told by numerous U.S. officials uh, that it is clear uh, that uh, that Iran's hand is clear in all of these operations and attacks uh, that the Houthis carry out. So, of course, there's a real uh, concern over what Iran will do here. Uh, I will tell you, the U.S. officials don't think that Iran necessarily wants to escalate and open up any kind of full-scale war or or major front with iran uh but they're certainly eager to stir the pot so what we're seeing here now is an attempt to de-escalate the situation essentially give the houthis a bloody nose and 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 give them a message uh to back down and stop carrying out these operations in the red sea wolf
1: you know i'm just curious or near there at the pentagon uh clearly an operation like this will it would have been planned for some time, you don't just go ahead and expand this war. And it comes as the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, is apparently still in the hospital. Update us on that and the connection, if any, to what's going on.
15: He very much remains in the hospital at this point. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been there since January 1st, so 10 days and no expectation that he's going to be released in in the coming hours, perhaps not even in the coming days here. So the Pentagon has been adamant, and so has the White House, that Austin can do his job from Walter Reed. It is a military medical center that has the facilities necessary to conduct secure communications, and this, effectively, is their opportunity to prove it. Now, we don't know yet his extent of involvement? Is he able to monitor this in real time? What are the communications like between him and the president at this time? Was this strike pre-authorized? In other words, did he have to give a final sign off while in the hospital? These are all frankly questions that we have right now. The bottom line is this, this entire process in the national security perspective was able to move forward. So Alex, what should we be looking for next?
11: Well, a, a reaction of some kind from the Houthis, if you believe the warning that they issued earlier today, uh, there will be some kind of response. So the question is whether this uh, escalates from here. Again, the, the U.S. and whoever else is involved in terms of allies uh, trying to send the message to, uh, to the Houthis uh, to stop this, whether they listen to that, it remains very much to be seen, Wolf.
1: We're going to stay on top of this new development uh, in, the, uh, in the region. Very significant indeed, guys. Thank you very much. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. Aaron Burnett out front. Starts right now.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599.